Signals, headsets, they got everything. Newton, up the middle. No, I'm sorry, he goes right. Still loose. Oh, did he accelerate? How about Oh, my that? goodness. Touchdown, Auburn. A young man who is fulfilling his athletic potential. Welcome to the second episode this week of the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett. I'm the host of the Sportscasters. And once again this week, my usual co-host Don is in the basement with a case of the scurvy. And I'd like to welcome my very able co-host, my brother, USHL star, Anthony Day. How are you doing, Anthony? I'm doing great, Steve. Happy to be on. We're very excited to have you. And yesterday, we posted the first edition this week of the podcast, and we focused on college sports. We talked a lot about the NCAA basketball tournament with Zach Rosenfield and talked about the NCAA college hockey tournament with Ken Schott. And now today we are going to focus on professional sports. We have an interview with Dan Kadar from MockingTheDraft.com. We're going to talk a little bit about the NFL draft, which is about a month away. And we also have an interview with the great Jonah Carey, the author of the number one baseball book in Amazon.com right now, The Extra 2%. It's about the Tampa Bay Rays. And we're going to have a really nice talk with Jonah Carey as soon as we finish three things. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. Alright, Anthony, why don't you kick us off? Alright, well, I'm pretty pissed at Matt Cook. Um, Pittsburgh Penguins forward goon of the nhl and i'm a big hockey guy and you know today i turn on the tv and pti's on and look at what you see the second tab on your right is matt cook and when do you ever see the nhl on the right side of uh pti rundown so matt cook's bringing nothing but bad attention to hockey and right now it's not what hockey needs and this is another thing about him he just plays with no respect for anyone on the ice and as a hockey player when you see someone running around having no respect for the other players, it's just kind of it's just gross watching play. I just want Matt Cook to go away. You know, it's interesting that you say that because a lot of the uh, players in the NHL have actually come out on their Twitters and congratulated the NHL for giving Matt Cook the, Cook the suspension that they did. And I know some players are very critical with the way they're just Matt fed is. up with them. You know, everyone's just done with them. You yeah, know? and I think even his own team is done with them because the yeah. Penguins have been the Penguins have been caught in kind of a a trap where they want yeah. to complain about dirty play because of and headshots because of what happened to Sidney Crosby this year. Not that those hits were necessarily dirty, but they're stuck in the middle because Matt Cook's on their team. And for him to be suspended now the third time this season, it's just enough is enough. And I give the NHL a lot of credit for, for giving him 10 games and the first round of the playoffs, which could be seven more. And it's over $200,000 in salary, Matt Cook. It's a lot of loot. Yep, and he's going to give that up. So... I want to congratulate the, NFL, the NHL for finally kind of taking a stand and sticking up for their players and yep. uh, 
and it's it's good to see. But you're right; it seems like the only hockey, the, the only coverage hockey gets is negative coverage, and uh, Matt Cook certainly doesn't help out in that scenario. All right, my number one thing: uh, the NFL owners are all gathered in New Orleans, a place that's really special to me right now, and uh, they are uh, altering the rules a little bit. And one rule that they changed that passed today on a vote. Uh, by 26 to 6 is that the, they have moved the kickoffs from the 30-yard line to the 35-yard line, which is going to mean a lot more touchbacks. And the reason they have done this is because they figure that having more touchbacks, there's going to be less injuries. And uh, the kickoff is always one of the most dangerous plays in the sport. Uh, I remember a couple years ago on opening day in Buffalo, a player was injured on the opening kickoff, Kevin Everett, and there's been some rules changed in the past, cutting down on wedges, but they've, they've uh, ma- um, made the extra step this year, and they are not going to have uh, kickoffs from the 30 anymore, from the 35. What do you think, Anth? Yeah, you know, the NFL is an ever-changing sport, and uh, I'm sure a couple years on the road, nobody's going to be talking about this rule, but it's kind of funny today. I saw Lovey Smith, he, he was kind of riled about it, you know, having Devin Hester on your team. Uh, you're not too happy about the prospect of uh, teams kicking it right through the end zone every time. But, again, I mean, it's going to work out in the end for, um, you know, for the players. And, you know, one of the things I heard today was um, they did it because of less, less speed for, the, for when the players collide. You know, that five-yard, you know. Um, the physics in it. Yeah, the distance that they'll have to cover and the speed. I mean, it makes sense. And, you know, in the end, you, you don't want guys to be, uh, to be you know, getting carted off the field every day. So I think uh, – in the long run, it's fine, but it's just kind of, kind of just a weird rule to just kind of accept. It. You know, it doesn't seem like like a lot, but I think it's going to pay off. One other interesting rule that passed thirty to two is now the booth replay official review all scoring plays, and uh, that's actually something that they do in the NHL as well. All the goals are reviewed by Toronto in the NHL, so I think that's another good rule that all scoring plays are going to be reviewed, so the coaches don't need to worry about having a challenge uh, and having a scoring right. play. Uh, change the course of the game. So I think the NFL, the NFL is doing a good job at the owners' meetings, uh, setting forth some new rules that we're going to like. Anth? Yeah, my second thing is um, it's March, and um, I watch ESPN all the time, and I'm starting to see the Masters commercial. So getting pretty excited for the Masters, and I know uh, the guys at Sportscasters are big app fans, and the Masters always have nice apps. And after seeing um, March Madness app this year, I'm pretty excited about what the Masters are going to going to provide me on, on a great old iPhone. So I'm pretty excited for the Masters and, and what the app will bring. And hopefully the, the Masters will have an iPad app as well. Oh, absolutely. And I know one cool thing about the app last year is there were certain parts of the course that yeah. they would have a camera on all the amen time. Amen Corner, they'd have Amen Corner, and then they'd have you know like a feature pairing or yeah. a feature group. So I'm pretty excited about it for this year. And that will be fantastic for the, oh, yeah. for the app. All right, yeah. my number two thing. I got a bone to pick with the Buffalo Sabres. Now, I'm very happy with how everything is going with the new ownership, but the Buffalo Sabres denied the sportscasters a chance to have oh. a press credential. How dare they? And I'm very disappointed because I got basically a one-sentence reply from the Sabres front office member that was in charge of press credentials, and he said, I'm sorry, at this time, our policy, we do not grant press passes to individuals who are not connected to media outlets. Well, Ugh. I completely disagree with that because I'm the individual and my media outlet is the sportscasters. <laughs> All right. The sportscasters is a media outlet. We produce uh, two podcasts to one podcast a week. We, we work 
on the internet to do blogs. We're, we are a media outlet, so I'm not happy with the Sabres denying us, but they haven't heard the last from us, and I will reply to his email, and I will fight that and make sure we do get credential by playoff time because I have some really good plans for some stuff that I'd like to do during the playoffs. That's garbage, bro. How dare, not, I don't like that. Yeah, how dare you, Sabres? Yeah. All right, well, my third thing is um, probably one of my best friends, uh, Vinny Scarcella, St. Francis graduate, Canisius College graduate. Signed a pro contract this week with the Unwired Jackals of the East Coast uh, Hockey League. And for those who aren't big uh, hockey guys, it's like the double A of um, professional hockey. So I just want to say uh, congrats to Vinny. He's already three games deep in his uh, professional career. And, I mean, great kid, great family, well-deserved. So that's my, thir- that's my third thing. Yeah, we love Vin. We talked about him last week. Him and Corey finished up their college careers as number one and number two in scoring in the Canisius Hockey Program's history. And we love Vin. He's a good kid, and I, I hope he has a lot of success in Elmira and hopefully can get into a camp next year in the NHL. No, and no update on Corey yet. He's still, uh, I know Elmira is offering a deal, but I'm pretty sure he's still waiting out for maybe an AHL team. So no update on uh, Coco. All right, my number third thing. The Yankees are talking about having two lineups and having a leadoff competition between Derek Jeter and Brett Gardner. And, uh, you know, it's one thing if you don't want Derek Jeter to lead off anymore, but it's a completely another thing to put him in a competition with Brett Gardner. <laughs> I mean, Brett Gardner is a nice player and everything, but you're talking about a guy who's going to be the first Yankee to hit 3,000 hits this year, and he has to be in a competition for the leadoff spot with Brett Gardner? It's disrespectful. Okay. Yeah, it's totally disrespectful. Girardi, you either want Jeter to lead off or you don't. You know exactly, you don't need a competition. You know exactly who you would rather have lead off. Just put Gardner at lead off and move Jeter to two or wherever you want to move him if you're going to move him. Don't make him be in this petty competition with Brett Gardner. It's ridiculous, it's disrespectful, and it's a joke. And uh, I'm, I don't know what, I don't think Jeter has, has commented yet, but I'm sure he is not happy. The good news is he is marrying that really hot chick. Yeah, I was just about to say, the good news is you go home to Jessica Biel or whoever he's dating. Nah, he's not too worried about it, I'm sure. Yeah, he's marrying the girl from Parenthood, the one that uh, used to teach Max. I forget her name. Is it, It's Maya or Mia or ah, something. Yeah, she's some not. gorgeous woman. Yeah, so yeah, I'm sure. congratulations to Jeter on that. But I'm disappointed in the Yankees. <laughs> and next week we're going to have Sweeney Murdy, the beat reporter for the New York Yankees. Uh, for WFAN, he's going to be on, and we'll certainly talk to him more about this. All right, so a couple things, a couple pieces of business. Don't forget you can find us on the internet, uh, http colon slash slash www.sports-casters.com. That's www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash thesportscasters. You can find us on Twitter. Our Twitter is at sports underscore casters. And you can also find us, we're blogging now, and we've been blogging a couple times a week. Uh, that is http colon slash slash thesportscasters.blogspot.com. So we will be right back with an interview with the great Jonah Carey. Our next guest is the author of the current number one baseball book on Amazon.com, The Extra 
He is also the co-author of last year's Baseball Between the Numbers and has contributed to many other books. He is Jonah Carey. Jonah, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Steve. I think Baseball Between the Numbers came out maybe a few years ago. Oh, yeah, hopefully, yeah. hopefully the lessons are still relevant uh, today-ish, so that would be good. Well, you know, I, I had a lot of fun this weekend. I went to a bookstore. I was kind of walking around. We do a book club, uh, book book of the month, and I was just yep. looking around for some ideas going forward. And everywhere I turned in the bookstore, there was a stack or so of the extra 2%. But you could tell that quite a few had been sold, not saying they were collecting dust. But uh, I was really excited to see that and know that we're having you on. I've been looking at all the rankings, and the book has really been a huge success. And I know you've been everywhere promoting it. Um, how has it been the first couple of weeks of publication here? How do you feel about how the book's doing? I mean, it's doing fine. I, you know, it's, it's great that it's selling well, but if it wasn't selling well, that would be okay too. I mean, the only thing that you could do in a case like this is write a, a decent book and then hope that people like it. And people do like it. And to me, that's honestly much more important. I have no idea how much it's going to sell or how fast or when or what. Or, you know, I, I promote it because I want it to sell because I want people to read it. But uh, it's the reading more than anything. I feel like if people get a hold of it, they probably will like it because I think it's a pretty good book. And, and I'm happy about that. And I'm happy that Joe Posnanski and Peter Gammons and the New York Times and all those people like the book. That, to me, that's the bottom line. And by the way, not only those people, but people who are not Joe Posnanski and the New York Times, it's encouraging that they also like the book. Well, you were kind enough to send me a copy. And I think I read it in about a day and a half. I couldn't put it down. I really, really enjoyed it myself. Um, and I, I've, I heard you, you have a pretty good story for how the idea for the book kind of came about. Yeah, well, it's a funny story. Basically, the gist of it is uh, I used to post on a Montreal Expos board back in the day when I was just out of college. Wasn't a sports writer back then, was writing about business, but uh, had not done anything really professionally sports writing-wise. Uh, but I was still into stats. This is like the late 90s, so... Very few other people were. Basically, I'd read Bill James as a kid. I'd read Rob Nyer, and, and there was virtually nobody else doing this. Anyway, so I'd talk about, you know, random Expos, 24th men, and I'd have little comments here or there. And some people thought I was kind of loopy. What is this stuff? And some people said, oh, sort of interesting. So fast forward a bunch of years, and I get an email from this guy. He says, you don't know me, but I was AZ bullpen coach, and I used to post on the same message board as you, and I've kept tabs on your career, and it's awesome that you've made a name for yourself. And... Now I'm an editor at Random House. Come write a book for me. And I said, you know, I, I thought I was being punked by one of my friends. I didn't understand what was going on. I said, uh, well, gosh, that sounds good. All right. And then uh, a few months later, the, the flash uh, forward to 2008, Tampa Bay Rays are playing very well. It's that summer. And they say, hey, you know, we, we have an idea now. It's not just a, a, a relationship, but let's go ahead and write about the Tampa Bay Rays. What do you think? Said fine, went to New York, met about it, we came up with the parameters, and that was the book. And that's how it came to be. Now, I know you've mentioned that the, the Tampa Bay Rays were not the most cooperative group necessarily. Um, how did you do with access, and who was kind of really open, and who was a little bit harder to, to get as far as getting your interviews together for the book and the research? Well, the Rays organization has no vested interest in... in promoting the book or, or giving me access or whatever. I did get some. I went right. over to training and uh, interviewed a bunch of people, but mostly I had to do it, you know, it took some extra effort. So uh, after the first few days of, of interviewing people, whatever, they said, okay, you know, we're not going to be negative. We're not going to be positive. We're going to assume a neutral stance. We're not going to uh, 
you know, necessarily roll out the red carpet. So if I wanted to get in touch with players, there are all kinds of ways to do that. You don't need to be in the clubhouse. And one way is they have agents. Mm-hmm. Call up the agent and say, hey, I'm writing a book about the Tampa Bay Rays, and Joe Blow plays for the Tampa Bay Rays. Can we talk? You know, let's talk at a coffee shop or let's uh, talk on the phone, whatever. And, and so they said, no, no problem. Did that. Uh, and then if you read the book, you know, it's definitely about – the Tampa Bay Rays to some extent, but it's sort of like saying that the money ball is about the A's. There's a lot more going on, obviously. Right. I interviewed the mayor of St. Petersburg, Florida, because they're trying to build a stadium there. And I interviewed other GMs and I interviewed scouts and I interviewed performance psychologists and economists and, and all kinds of stuff. There's Simpsons references in the book. It's, it's a very eclectic kind of book. Uh, but, uh, you know, you put it all together. I think it was something like, uh, the number that we usually give is about 175 interviews. It might have been a little more than that, but that, that was about right. That was the closest round number. And uh, and it was, you know, two years of, of more than two years of reporting and writing. And, uh, yeah, feel like it came together pretty well. You mentioned Moneyball. One thing that's been kind of frustrating me the last couple of weeks, I've been preparing for this interview, and I would tell people, you know, I'm going to have to join a carry-on. i tell people about the book, try to get them interested. And, and a lot of people say to me, well, how is it different than Moneyball? And, uh, you know, I, I've read it, I understand the difference, but I think a lot of people are kind of looking at the book just at face value, not knowing exactly what it's about and saying, ah, it's just another money ball. Um, how, as an author, how would you answer the question of what's the difference between the two? Well, first of all, if it was just another money ball, then I'd own Chain of Islands by now, so that would be nice. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, the thing about Michael Lewis, he's a great storyteller, and he has a specific narrative, and, and he's going to go at it in his way, and... Typically, there's a protagonist and an antagonist, and, and they kind of play it out, and the book goes along in that direction. I would say, and by the way, I love Moneyball, and I think Michael Lewis is the best. I don't think there's anybody who does it any better. I think that mine is a little more, the extra 2% is a little bit more subtle. Um, you've got a whole bunch of stuff going on. It's not really reasonable to say, oh, it's scouts versus stats or whatever, because it really is not. Uh, and, and it gets into different elements of it. So if we're talking about the extra 2% and what it is that the Rays do, 2% just means be a little bit better than the competition in everything that you do. It's a quote from the owner, Stuart Sternberg, and it has to do with certainly on-field stuff and there are statistics involved, but scouts are very important. And so is having a good manager like Joe Madden. And so is marketing the team better than the previous regime did. And uh, so is, you know, every other thing that they're trying to do. I mean, their ushers are better than the old regime was. They sent them to Disney World to, uh, to retrain them to be more friendly and more, uh, and more receptive to fans. So just having all that stuff put together, uh, if you go through the book, you know, it is about marketing and it's about scouts and it's about Joe Madden growing up in a mining town in Pennsylvania and, and just a whole bunch of other things. So that's what I would say it is with this book. There's just a lot of things going on. But, yes, there is one overarching narrative, uh, you know, having to do with the history of the Tampa Bay Rays and the progression of the Tampa Bay Rays in the community of Tampa Bay. I love how you mentioned that the, the actual 2% is a quote from the owner and how the owner said that the Tampa Bay Rays need to be about 2% better than everyone else and everything they do because uh, the Sabres just changed ownership. And there's a big quote from... Our new owner, the Sabres' new owner, where he says that from this day forward, the Sabres exist to win Stanley Cups. And the reason I bring the Sabres up is because the Sabres are someone who, in their previous regime, completely stripped their scouting staff down um, to two or three people, uh, totally relying on video scouting. And in the book, you talk a lot about the Tampa Bay scouting and how well the Tampa Bay scouting department has done. And I wanted you just to talk a little bit about uh, Tampa Bay and their scouting and how well they've done in the last few years and how that's helped the team grow. 
Well, sure, and, and, and you know, hockey and baseball have there are some differences. I mean, Buffalo Sabres you're talking about a small market there. Tampa Bay Rays you're talking about a small market there, but it's just it's still bigger business. The Tampa Bay Rays just have a larger organization and more resources than the Buffalo Sabres do. In fact, I would venture to say a lot more. Maybe not anymore. More, yeah, yeah, there's more re- more revenue sharing in baseball. There's just more things that even the playing field. And having said that, of course, the Rays are still competing with the Yankees and the Red Sox, so it still seems impossible at times. But uh, it is a better situation. So I, I'm. I'm a little bit sympathetic to the Sabres for stripping operations to the bone. Obviously, it's not a smart idea, but listen, I mean, when it's a difficult situation, you're trying to pack the building and you're not getting exact, you know, you're getting tens of millions of dollars from the Rangers and the Penguins and the Red Wings, then that's a problem. And, and uh, you know, you have to work your way around that. And I think that, you know, the new owner coming in and investing in the product is not absolutely a good thing. And it is what Stuart Sternberg did. And, and look, they still don't have the payroll that the Yankees and the Red Sox do. But there are little things that they do that they arguably do better than those teams or other teams. So for instance, this is more a player development thing than a scouting thing. But I thought it was very interesting, subtle, but interesting. They have, um, typically in baseball, you have one roving scouting director, sorry, uh, fielding instructor, pitching instructor, and hitting instructor for, for the whole organization, for all levels of the minor leagues. Okay. Rays have two. Two fielding guys, two pitching, two hitting. How much does it cost to hire three roving instructors? I don't know, two, three hundred thousand dollars. Not that much in baseball. These guys are not making a fortune. But for the co- less than the minimum uh, cost for a player in Major League Baseball, rookies make about four hundred k. You have vastly improved your capabilities to develop these guys. And you know the Rays have always had these high draft picks. And I think the critics or the cynics would say, well, you know, well, it's very easy when you have these top ten picks every season. Well, that's fine, but the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Kansas City Royals have had top 10 picks almost for as long as I've been alive, and they're not any good. And I think it's indicative of the fact that they do do a good job of developing uh, their players, that they are devoting more resources to it. And look, if you have a choice between signing an aging, you know, your Alex Kovalov or your Greg Vaughn or whatever, your aging veteran in hockey or baseball or any other sport, versus investing in your own, trying to build through the organization... Certainly, if you're the Rays or the Sabres, but I would argue even if you're the you know Red Wings or the Yankees, it behooves you to go that direction because the bang for the buck is typically going to be much much higher. Yeah, it seems like you know the teams that scout better they win better. I mean, it was easy for a lot of people argue that the Penguins you know were blessed with all these top picks and that's how they've built their teams. But you know, Curtis Letang wasn't the second overall pick in the draft either, and you could argue that he's their best player this year. And has carried the team with the injuries that they've had. Um, one interesting thing about the Rays that kind of jumped out at me: it seems like nobody goes to the games. And I know they had a little bit of a, a bit of a controversy last year with some of the players calling the fans out. But then they have the fifth highest TV ratings in Major League Baseball. You know what? Is that a problem that just? in all of sports that people are less likely to go to the games now because of how comfortable they are in their homes with the theater TVs and the big, you know, in the home surround sound and all of that, or what's going on? How, how can a team be so bad in drawing attendance, but so good with their ratings? Well, there's a few things to answer there. First of all, uh, it is not the case necessarily that people are staying home more on aggregate. If you talk about every market, that's not true. In fact, if you go back 15, 20 years, uh, or God, 25 or 30, attendance was much lower in Major League Baseball. Much, much, much lower. It's changed a lot. Uh, my former colleague, Dave Schoenfield from ESPN.com, he, had a great, he just joined Twitter today. Follow him. He's great. He, uh, he tweeted something. He says, raised in 2010, ninth in AL in attendance, 1.86 million. Yankees in 96. This is the Yankees who play in the city of New York, by the way. Yep. Uh, seventh in AL, 2.86 
$2 million, and they won the World Series. He goes on to say, but some want Rays contracted? Give it time. Yes, I agree with that. You're talking about a Rays team in that market that had almost the same, uh, not very far away from the Yankees' attendance in 96, the year that they won the World Series. The Rays do not have the history that the New York Yankees had. There's no fathers and sons and people who grew up in the 50s and went to see Mickey Mantle, and now they can go ahead and see Derek Jeter. It's not like that. The team has been around for 12 years. There's 12% local unemployment. The stadium is a whole. It's the worst located stadium in all of baseball. There are fewer fans within a 30-minute drive of Tropicana Field than any other stadium. And still, attendance is way, way up from where it was in the Vince Namoli era, and even up from 2007 before the Rays started winning. It would be wonderful if the Rays had the number one attendance in the American League, but that's just unrealistic. Not every team can be number one. It's impossible. It's a zero-sum game. There's going to be a first, a second, a third, and what have you. If you're drawing almost 1.9 million fans and you have all those things going against you, that's not too bad. They could do better, but it's not too bad. Now, having said that, it is the case in that particular market that I think attendance has been hurt a little bit by all these factors, by the geography, by the stadium, and by the fact that you can sit at home and watch. And they do have the fifth highest local TV ratings. Higher than Los Angeles, by the way. There's, I don't know, 11 million people living in the greater Los Angeles area, yet more people watch Tampa Bay Rays games in Tampa Bay than watch uh, Dodgers games in L.A. I thought that was very, very fascinating. So... There's a lot going on. It would be nice if they had more butts in the seats. Uh, They just signed their recent TV deal after the 2008 season, so they actually can't necessarily monetize these great ratings right now, but they can in a few years. And I do think that it is on the upswing that things are improving. Stu Sternberg would love to make more profits, and that's why he's agitating for a new stadium, because they could make more money that way. He could also get a more favorable lease deal. Right now, the lease does not necessarily favor the owner all that much. So there's a lot of things going on. It is complex, and it does require some breakdown, and that's why I devoted you know 272 pages to it, uh, rather than trying to explain it in uh, in a couple of minutes, because it is difficult to do. In a- now, one thing, just getting back to some of the meat and potatoes of the book, one thing that comes up a lot, and when I first read the word, I said, huh? And that's arbitrage. Can you talk a little bit about what arbitrage is and the role that it plays in the book? Because it it is one of the more uh, reoccurring uh, themes in the book. Sure, and I do try to make it simple in the book, even though arbitrage sounds like a complicated and very French sort of word, uh, which it is, by the way. Uh, Arbitrage basically means you're taking two varieties of the same doodad, selling one, buying the other, and making a small profit at the same time. So the only literal example that I can think of in baseball in recent history is when the Phillies acquired uh, Roy Halladay and shipped out Cliff Lee at almost exactly the same time. Two aces, similar commodities, bought one, sold the other. Kind of worked out for them, and they actually got Cliff Lee back in a trade later, so that was fine. But you can't literally do that very often. You can't buy A shares and sell B shares at the same time. So the word arbitrage has come to take on a broader meaning, which is basically just... Make profits. Make little profits in little transactions all the time. A very extra 2% kind of idea. So the Rays, for instance, before they became good, they made all these little trades. And they didn't look like much, but they amounted to quite a bit when you added them up. One of them was how they built their bullpen. They acquired J.P. Howell, who was just a you know skinny little left-hander. He was a high draft pick, but he hadn't really worked out. And they acquired a guy named Joey Gathright, whose claim to fame is he can jump over cars. On YouTube, if you... <laughs> Go, to, go on YouTube, you'll see Joey Gathright ju- jumping over a BMW, which is great, but not a good baseball player. Uh, and J.P. Howell worked out. He ended up being a linchpin on that 2018. Another guy is Grant Balfour. They picked him up for basically nothing from the Brewers. Actually designated him for assignment. Uh, nobody claimed him. They picked him up again. He was a huge guy in their bullpen in 2008. 
and again in 2008. Ben Zobris they got for virtually nothing. He was a utility guy with the Houston Astros. I don't think they envisioned Ben Zobrist becoming an MVP candidate in 2009, but that's the beauty of arbitrage is you make all these little trades, moves, and finance, and baseball, whatever, and if you keep doing them, they're going to add up to something. Plus, the added bonus is if you make enough of these deals, even if it's a 1,000 to 1 shot that one's going to blow up, you know, make a thousand deals and your thousand to one shot odds are it's going to work out. You're going to get one that does hit, and that was probably the Ben Zobras move. So that that's really what arbitrage is all about, and I think it is kind of a fancy way of saying yeah, buy low, sell high, whatever. Uh, but that's the way these guys think. They are Wall Street guys. They come from Goldman Sachs and the world of private equity, and it's worked out for them. It kind of reminds me of the guy that got some news on the internet a few years ago because he started with a paperclip and he, he made a, one trade after another and ended up with a house. You remember hearing <laughs> about that? Uh, no, but that sounds about right. Yeah, it sounds about exactly what it's like. Another uh, really cool thing in the book, I thought, was the Carlos Pena story. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, and I think, you know, you talk about differentiators from Moneyball. I'm trying to say this without being denigrating, but, I, you know, there's definitely a theme that goes along with Moneyball. It's just like, these guys are smart and they outfox the other guy. I definitely am making that case with the Rays, but I'm not claiming that, not that Michael Lewis was claiming that the A's are infallible, but I'm really trying hard to point out, you know, mistakes when they were made. And in the case of Carlos Pena, it was pure luck. That's all it was because yep. several teams had dumped Carlos Pena. And Carlos Pena goes to camp in 2007 with the Rays. Good on the Rays for picking the guy up. There's no question. Uh, but they get a few weeks into camp. And uh, they bring him over to the office, the Joe Mann's office. They say, I'm sorry, Carlos. We love you as a person. God, everybody loves Carlos Pena. Uh, we think you have some talent, but you know we're just not. It's not going to work out. You're not going to be our starting first baseman. Not going to sit on the bench. We're going to have to designate you for assignment. He's, he's bummed, you know. He packs up his stuff and off he goes. Leaves the complex. A few hours later, he gets a call in his cell. Just kidding. We need you back. Our first <laughs> baseman, who is going to be Greg Norton, who if you've heard of Greg Norton, then you're a better man than most because he has not been in baseball for several years. Uh, he got injured. They called Carlos Pena back. He says, "All right, I'm coming back. No problem." Carlos Pena hit 46 home runs that season. That is pure luck. If Greg Norton does not get hurt, then they have Greg Norton aging stiff of a first baseman. I'm sure he's a fine individual, but not a very good ball player. Instead of Carlos Pena, 46 home run hitter, who ultimately, again, became another linchpin of those teams, not only on the field, but really a team leader. He called the team meetings. Everybody loved him. Uh, just a huge part of that organization, and that just came down to pure circumstance. And so, you know, that is something. You're building a winning baseball team or a winning business or whatever. You could talk all you want about the best methods in the world, but if you don't have luck on your side, there's a good chance it's not going to work out. And the Rays were very, very good, but they were certainly lucky as well. Another spot that the Rays seem to be very, very good is kind of replacing uh, players as the years go by. And Matt Garza is a player that, uh, they lost, and that they seem to be replacing somewhat seamlessly, huh? Yeah, absolutely, and, and it's funny how it comes around that way. You know, they're not heartless. I mean, the Rays still de- obviously develop relationships with players, and they want to see them thrive and succeed in Tampa Bay, but by the same token, that whole idea of arbitrage is always at the back of their mind. So when Garza was first acquired, they traded a guy named Delman Young, who was a very talented player, number one prospect in baseball, yep. according to Baseball America. Uh, but he had thrown a bat at an umpire, AAA, and and he was not a great fielder, and he didn't have a great on-base percentage. There were a lot of things that, you know, although he had this raw talent, made it seem like, mm, he's not going to be a star player. I don't think it's going to work out. But he had a perception of being a, a potential star player. Had 96 RBIs in their first in his first season, which some people are very impressed by. So they trade Delman Young. Six-player trade. They get Matt Garza and Jason Bartlett in that deal. Two guys who were huge on that 2018. 
So uh, you go down the road three years, and now Matt Garza gets a 2010 offseason, and the Rays say, hey, Matt Garza's a great pitcher. We think he's a, a fun guy to have in the clubhouse, whatever, but he's getting expensive. He's going to get on toward free agency. We need to restock our farm system. We need to get cheaper, whatever. So they trade Matt Garza for five players. A couple of other guys went over to the Cubs as well, but for all intents and purposes, it was Matt Garza for four prospects. And uh, it was an interesting move because here was a guy who was key to their success. But the thing about the Rays is they've built so much stockpile in their organization that they have a guy named Jeremy Hellickson who's going to step into the rotation this year. There's a good chance he's the rookie of the year. And I would argue, and Kevin Goldstein of Baseball Prospectus and some other people who are smarter than me when it comes to prospects, much smarter than me, say that Jeremy Hellickson has a very good chance to be better than Matt Garza, not in five years, not in three years, right now. That he could be better than him right now. And oh, by the way, Garza is going to make about seven million dollars this year, and Jeremy Hellickson is going to make four hundred thousand. And that is how you build a team—not only a good team, but a team on the cheap. Rays are going to have a forty-two million dollar payroll as we sit here today in late March. Uh, they're going to go up against the Yankees again, two hundred plus. Red Sox again, one forty, one fifty. And you know what? They've got a shot. I'm not sure if they're going to win the East this year. That's a long shot, but they definitely have a shot at the wild card at forty-two million. That's really saying a lot. It's interesting. Because uh, the sportscasters are here with Jonah Carey. We've got a few minutes left with them. Uh, you have been everywhere the last couple of weeks. And I'm just wondering, you know, you've done things like the Adam Carolla show. That's its mm-hmm. own animal. You were in Jim Rome today. You're in a smaller podcast like the sportscasters tonight. Um, you do your own podcast. You have great guests. Uh, what have you learned from the media and being a you know making all these appearances in the last few months about sports media and where it is right now. Nothing really surprised me. There are good outlets and there are less good outlets, and that's fine. And uh, you know you don't always expect the host to read your book. You just hope that they have the wherewithal that if they haven't read your book, that they can wing it pretty well. And I, I'm not going to name names, but there are a few that didn't read it, but they were great. The interviews went great, and everything was fine and fun and and. Uh, they got the word out and sold some books, and that's fine. I mean, I, I do it because I like it, and I do it because it's necessary. It's both. You know, you can't – I could write the best book in the world. I'm not claiming this is the best book in the world, but even if I did, there are all kinds of stories of these authors who spend five, ten years, so much research, blah, 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 and they, and they sell, you know, a thousand copies of a book, which is nice, but it, it doesn't really move the needle, and it's difficult, and, and blah, 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 and, and – uh, you go out and do it, and that, and that's fine. And so it's uh, I'm I'm happy to do it. I love chatting, and and uh, it's all good. But uh, but sure, I mean it takes up your days, and it's it's a totally different animal. You're sitting. It's it's like exactly the opposite, really. I mean, you're sitting sequestered in your house or your office for two plus years, writing a book in solitude, right. not talking to anybody, and your back hurts, and you haven't shaved in a month, <laughs> and whatever. And then you go on TV or you go on the Adam Pearl podcast and you got to be sociable and you got to, you know, drop F-bombs and be silly. And it, it's totally different. And, and I happen to have both of those things in my skill set. But uh, it's, it's weird and, and different and, uh, and probably not for everybody. You know, we're kind of in a very similar position. You're probably the first person who's been on the podcast that has his own podcast and is kind of doing it himself. You know, right. th- this podcast, you know, I'm someone who's probably – even a little bit more disadvantaged than you because I don't have the connections you do, but I'm building the audience up week by week, trying to book great guests and you're building your audience up week by week, building, you know, with great, really amazing guests. And I just wonder how, how is it different to be the guy who is running the show compared to the guy who is on the show? 
it's still a conversation, right? I mean, you just talk less if you're the host. That's all. You right. let the other person uh, carry it, and that's why I try to get good guests. I don't presume that I have the ability. You know, people who host terrestrial radio shows or even Sirius XM or whatever, and they do most of the talking and only have occasional guests, mazel tov to those guys and gals because yeah. that's freaking hard, dude. I mean, I maybe one day that might be in, in the cards for me, but I don't know. I mean, that seems very difficult, and just talking into an echo – uh, you know, it just, it would be challenging. And I think that having a guest uh, does make it a little bit easier. And so if I go on somebody else's show, I understand that it's my responsibility to be interesting or funny. And, and you know, the person will subsequently publicize the show and say, yeah, I had Jonah Carey on. And, and even if you've never heard of that guy, it should be someone interesting. You click on the show and I benefited from listening to the sportscasters or Jim Rome or whatever. That's the point. You know, I, there's something of an obligation to, to frankly be good. Uh, and so I hope it turns out that way. And so, you know, if I'm booking a guest and they're not very good, I kind of, I kind of feel bad about it. I mean, most, I think most of them have been pretty good, but you know, you really have to kind of vet it a little bit. And sometimes it could be someone who's, I don't know, famous or, or whatever has a reputation and they just, they're not a dynamic speaker or they weren't, you know, they weren't feeling it that day or whatever. So, so sure. I mean, you want to have that, uh, that chemistry between the host and the guest. If I'm the host, you know, I'll try to ask the most non-cliche questions i possibly can but then ultimately it's up to them you know they got to carry it whereas if i'm the guest uh it's me that's carrying it which is funny of course because if this is the sportscaster show it's your show it's not my show but but that's that's how the responsibility goes and and uh you know i just hope that anybody who comes on any show just takes the time and and doesn't phone it in and and tries to be interesting and maybe funny and maybe have something to contribute to the conversation you know it's interesting because we talk we've been talking about the extra two percent and my buddy, our buddy Damashek, one piece yeah. of advice he gave me was, you know, when you're doing a podcast and you're, and it's your time to shine, you want to try to be yourself plus an extra two percent of your personality. Just be a Did little he bit. Say that? Yeah, he, he said that exact <laughs> thing to me. He's a good friend of mine. That doesn't surprise me. Either. Yeah, he's a great. He's a great guy, and he's been incredible to the sportscasters. He's been on two times already, nice. um, and he's made time for us during Super Bowl week when he was very busy. He's, you know, he's a great guy. You know that. And, um, you know, but it's interesting where he, you know, he gave me that advice. He says, when you don't have your guests, you know, and you know, you want to be just a little bit two, 2% more than your regular personality. Um, but you don't want to get too cartoonish. You don't want to be a cartoon of yourself. Um, Unless you're Adam Carolla who can pull it off with it like a champ. I don't know how he does it, but uh, unbelievable. Yeah, he, he is incredible. But did you feel like when you were on his podcast that you didn't really get a chance to talk as much as in the other, uh, you know, settings that you've been in in the last couple of weeks and months well i mean i was briefed i was briefed by people who listened to the show i was briefed by by dave himself who's you know friendly with adam obviously for a long time and and i knew that 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 was what was going to happen coming in if anything my expectations were so low i don't mean low in the sense of the show being good i knew it'd be good but in the sense of me getting to talk that uh that i thought it was great i thought i actually got to talk quite a bit considering the expectations and and the first few questions of the show were just a flat-out interview. About he asked five or six questions directly about the book, promoting the book, and that was fine. And I was happy to do that. And then we went off and talked about the facts of life and other stupidities. And I had fun with that, and I was laughing. And and uh, uh, Allison Rosen, who was also on the show and, and reads the news, I mean, she was involved in the conversation. And and uh, his producers are very funny. And and uh, and that's fine. I don't think there's any one good way to do a show. I mean, I think there are people that can go solo and talk. I mean, Rome, you know, vintage Rome is just talking, right? It's right. just and the show being about going the show. off and saying things. 
Yeah, and he's very good at that. And I think Corolla's got a whole shtick that revolves around kind of his whole entourage and also him talking and, and going on rants, and that's fine. And, and my thing is I have guests, and really most of my guests have actually been real-life friends of mine. They happen to have some status sometimes, but I'm friendly with them. I would have beers with them, or I would have them on the podcast. So, uh, yeah, it's all good. And I thought Damashek uh, – sorry, I thought Corolla was great. Damashek is also great. Um but that's fine. I, that that's one way to do a show, and it works very well for him. And and uh, gosh, I mean, you know, I'm just flattered that he thought to invite me, and and that was very nice of him. How has Twitter changed your career? Uh, hmm, that's a good question. Um, I don't know about changing my career exactly. I think that I could definitely get the word out more about the book or or whatever it is I'm doing. But. Um, yeah, I don't have an easy quantifiable answer for you. I don't know if I just completely ignore First of all, it's hard for me to imagine me ignoring Twitter because the way I am, my personality, I would have discovered it sooner or later. Right. Uh, it did help, and it's funny. It was just a, a conversation that I had with a buddy of mine. Uh, you know, he said, you got to go, and, and he's a little younger than me. He's late 20s, and he's just, he's very, he's always up on the new stuff. He's one, what you call, what Gladwell would call a maven. He knows everything, and he's ahead of the curve. And he said, uh, you got to do Twitter, you know, whatever. It's going to be great. You're going to have a lot of fun. I said, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to hear people eating their burritos, whatever, which is, you know, the perception of yep, that absolutely. Facebook was supposed to be about and all that. Um, but then he pointed out to me, hey, wait a minute. You also write for a living and have, you know, I'm a freelancer, right? So I don't have the ESPN platform or whatever behind me. I basically have to make my own way. And he said, if you're really trying to do that, then Twitter is really great. And this was a while ago. I joined Twitter. I don't know. This is two, three years ago, a little while ago. And um, and so I said, you know, you're right. That that makes actually total sense. And I didn't know what I was doing at first. And I don't know, maybe I still don't know what I'm doing. I'm alienating <laughs> some people, I'm sure. Uh, but, but it's just, you know, it's just me talking. And the thing is, although it, it can help career-wise, ultimately what it comes down to, I'll just be honest with you, uh, Steve, I live in New Hampshire in a small little college town. Uh, my buddies are scattered all over the place. I got buddies in LA, and New York, and in Canada, Chicago, other countries, but not here. I don't really have a whole entourage here, and so I've got myself and my wife and the babies. I've got a seventeen-month-old twins. It's an outlet, man. If I'm watching Jimmer Fredette and I'm, oh my god, I want to play by Jimmer Fredette, then I'm, I feel like I'm talking to people, and, and they're talking to me. And if they Take the time to send me an at reply, then I will reply back to them, you know, as much as I possibly can. So uh, it, it's just a conversation, and if it happens to help my career, that's great. But I, you know, to me, I think that the social part of the social media is almost the most germane. I don't know if it is for everybody. Maybe people, other people, do it solely to promote their book or, or whatever. And I certainly do promote my book on it or whatever I'm doing. But I just like that I get to talk to people. I think that's the real cool part about it. And uh, look, I've made real life friends from Twitter. There. There are people that I now go have beers with in various cities that I never would have before. That, that, that to me, is neater than selling 10,000 books. I have to be honest with you. We just got a couple more minutes left here with uh, Jonah Carey, the author of The Extra 2%. It's currently number one in baseball on Amazon. Uh, I read it. I loved it. Make sure you pick it up. Uh, just two more things, Jonah. I'm sorry sure. to keep you – hopefully I'm not keeping you too long. Uh, but one thing is you, you mentioned you're freelance, and I suppose we're freelance as well. Have you ever run into any troubles in terms of getting credentialed where people say, you know, well, we only give credentials to people who are associated with specific media? Or have you always just basically maybe based on your name and having a little more status than we have, have you, have you had no problems getting credentials when you need them? It mostly depends on who I'm representing when I'm doing the assignment. I don't come into assignment and say, I'm Jonah. 
and that's it. You have to represent somebody. You can, if you say I'm Steve from Sportscasters, okay, Sportscasters is your organization. Maybe it's not ESPN, but it is an organization. I think that's the point. Um, so if I, you know, back in the day, certainly when I was with Baseball Prospectus, for example, and they were lesser known at the time, and I said, hey, I want to cover this Dodgers game, yeah, there would be discussion, and who's Baseball Prospectus, and what do you want to do with the game, and blah, 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 and uh, it was hand in hand, right? You know, the, the Baseball Prospectus didn't have as much of a name, for better or for worse, I guess I didn't either. I, don't, I still don't think I'm a big name, but at least I, I'm a little bit more established than I was then. Um, and even now, there can be things on the margins. If I'm recovering something, I write for Fangraphs, for instance, and Fangraphs does absolutely great work and, and uh, very well respected within, uh, you know, many people within the community. But if I want to go interview somebody and I say I'm from Fangraphs, once in a while that can happen. Yeah, there's still a little bit of, oh, who are you, whatever. And, and, and so, sure, I think that's the case. But, of course, you know, I write for the Wall Street Journal. If I say I'm representing the Wall Street Journal, I mean, that, they, they, they rarely know who I am, but they'll say, <laughs> Wall Street Journal, what can I do for you? For right. the Wall Street Journal. So, uh, yeah, I think it just comes down to the publication. And that's the thing about being a freelancer is you can almost – I don't want to say that I tailor my assignments based on how I'm going to get credentials. But because I do write for different organizations, maybe with Fangraphs, I'm not as interested in doing whatever, insider kind of reporting because it doesn't fit. You know, I'm more interested in talking about things from a statistical standpoint when I'm writing for Fangraphs, whereas if it's ESPN.com or The Journal or I write for Penthouse sometimes, I mean – you know, these are totally different things. So the kind of story that I'm thinking about that I'm going to pitch to my corresponding editor uh, and then subsequently to whoever I need to cover will sometimes vary based on which publication it is. And I'm a freelancer by choice, by the way. I love writing for different publications, and, and I think it's cool to mix it up that way, and uh, I have a lot of fun with it. Last thing, uh, at the Sportscasters this month for the Book Club of the Month, we have been uh, looking at the best sports writing in America series, and we're going to mm -hmm. actually have Glenn Stout on in a couple of weeks. Uh, oh, great. Yeah, to talk about it. But um, my question is, as a writer, who do you like to read? I mean, we, we talked about Michael Lewis and how incredible he is. He's probably the Michael Jordan of nonfiction writing, right? I mean, he's uh, in a stratosphere above everyone else, I think. But, um, I mean, personally, I love to read Joe Poznanski. And the reason I ask and the reason I relate to the series is because what I've found looking through the various books, and I've bought, them on, uh, bought years of them online just to really thoroughly go through them, and it, it's, it's the authors that really, the, the writers that kind of stick out, and I think that's the point of the book, but I just wondered as someone who's as established as you are as a freelance writer, who do you like to read? Oh gosh, I mean, <laughs> lots of people, on the sports side, there's, it's going to be hard to list them all because I'm going to neglect somebody, but, right, uh, right. you have uh, a favorite? No, no, I don't. I don't think I have one favorite because I think it really depends on mood. So, for instance, on my own podcast, I'm going to have the guys from Free Darko on in the next few days. Uh, Bethlehem Scholes, what's well, his pen name? But anyway, Bethlehem Scholes and uh, and Eric Freeman. And the new Free Darko book is fantastic. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it's an NBA book, and it talks about the history of the NBA. And I think that very loosely there are some similarities to Bill Simmons's book of basketball. And by the way, I love reading Bill's stuff too. Yeah, I enjoy Bill. Uh, um, but but it's very it's different you know it's very stylish and, and and very lots of culture in there and stuff like that different than anything that I'd read and and I had read a little bit of Free Darko online but uh, sort of we you know we have some similar friends or friends of friends and so I kind of got to know them that got to know them that way and then their work that way and sort of backed into it and now I'm just like why did I waste my time not reading Free Darko these guys are fantastic and they're not affiliated with ESPN or whatever it is the case that uh, Shoals has written for. A bunch of publications, GQ and uh, Sporting News and Fan House and Yahoo and all these places, and is great. 
Um, but relatively speaking, they don't have the name that Joe Posnanski or, or Bill Simmons or whoever does. Uh, but they're fantastic. I read a lot of, you know, other stuff too. I read uh, business writers. One of my favorite books of all time is a book called uh, – a lot of my favorite books of all time actually are 20 years old or 30 years old or 80 years old. So I really like a book called Barbarians at the Gate. It's maybe my favorite nonfiction book of any genre and the premise of it they made it into a movie and all this stuff and the premise of it is it talks about a company called rj reynolds which was a big cigarette company and then they're trying to merge and, t- and get into the food company and food business and there's something called a leverage buyout that takes place and it seems very arcane but it reads like a thriller it reads like you're reading a, i don't know a grisham book or something like that it's just very over the top and what's gonna happen and oh my god the board meeting and it might fall apart and somehow you're just sucked into this thing and I think it's like you said, I think writing talks because on paper, man, a cigarette company getting into, trying to merge with craft foods or leverage buyouts, what the hell is all that? But, uh, but it's really compelling. The, the guys are um, John Helliar and, uh, gosh, what's the other guy's name? I think it's Brian Burroughs. Um, well, now i got to look it up now that I'm talking to you. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a fantastic book. And John Helliar, by the way, uh, also wrote a book called Lords of the Realm, which is about baseball and is about uh, it really took place it kind of peaked in the mid 90s right when all the labor stuff went to hell and of course that's when my expos lost their one chance to uh, potentially win the world series so that yep. was very compelling too and, and it was a great story and uh, yeah his name is Brian Burrow is the other guy not and, to be confused with Brian Bellows it's not Brian Bellows <laughs> yeah, no. not the uh, sniper from the Minnesota North Stars but um, yeah so it, it's just a case where you got to look for for whatever so so sure, I mean, there are a million sports writers, and like I said, there's no point in listing them all because I'm not going to get to them all. It's impossible. But but I think you just have to seek out whatever. There are, There's good writing to have, be had in a lot of places, and if it's something that's relatively unknown, like Free Darko, they've established themselves pretty well, but, you know, again, not Bosnansky. Or if it's a business book, or if it's a book about... Gosh, I love um, Michael Pollan. I, I love his stuff. He writes about... Uh, food, you know, the botany of desire and, and uh, the omnivore's dilemma. And it, it makes you, you know, I read those books and I'm like, maybe I need to eat differently. I mean, this had a profound change on my life. This was not just good literature. This was, I'm not so sure that I want to eat burgers anymore, or at least not burgers that I know are whatever, organic or grass fed or whatever, because I don't really approve of slaughterhouses or, 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 or feed farms or what have you. So, yeah, I mean, a really good book is going to affect you, not just in the way that it's good writing, but you're actually going to think differently about the way you read, write, or maybe even live your life. That, to me, is the true test of good literature. Not too many books like that, but the ones that are like that, they definitely stand out. What would you like to plug? The Extra 2%. Uh, pick it up on Amazon. Uh, lots of e-reader formats, by the way. I love it. I got, I got a copy of your book. Yeah, well, there you go. And I don't have an e-reader because I'm lame and old and all that. But uh, Kindle, iPad, Nook, you can get it that way. It looks great uh, on the no, iPad. It does. There you go. Yeah. I, I heard that. Yeah, and, it looks uh, great. There's no audio book, but there is a talk to te- text-to-talk version if you get the Kindle version. I know that. Uh, you can obviously get it on Amazon, greater bookstores, any Amazon, or I'm sorry, Barnes & Noble, Borders, before it goes bankrupt. <laughs> and please, please support your indie, uh, your indie bookstore. If you live in a town that has a really good independent bookstore, go over there, spend a couple extra bucks, and spend a few minutes in the store because they work hard and, and uh, do really cool stuff. So definitely all that. And, uh, oh, what else? Jonah Carey Podcast at JonahCarey.com, J-O-N-A-H-K-E-R-I. And uh, that's about it for the plugs because if we just do plugs, we're going to be here all night. And that's- <laughs> all right, Jonah Carey, thank you so much for being on the Sportscasters. We didn't get to talk any pucks. Uh, hopefully you can be on another time and we can talk a little bit of hockey because I know you are a fan. But um, 
uh, being, a, being the good Canadian that you are. But uh, thank you very much. Thank you for the copy of the book. I loved it. Um, I felt bad that you sent me one, so I did buy the uh, electronic version so I could oh, share, it, share it with the family. And, and my brother, who's uh, going to Yale for finance uh, next year, is reading it and, and is really enjoying it. Yeah, another person well. who's infinitely smarter than me. Awesome. <laughs> I've been working for you and your brother and all these people in about three years. That's why I try to be nice to people. It's not altruism. It's just being practical. Now, how do you think I feel? I'm 11 years older than him, and I actually put in my bio, in my bio on the website, you know, what's the best advice you ever got from mom? And I wrote, "Preborn like Anthony, because uh, <laughs> he is the star of the family. But, um, well done. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Cool. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. All right, that music means one thing and one thing only. It means book club. So yesterday, we talked a little bit about how the book of the month is the best American sports writing series and how Glenn Stout will be joining us in a couple weeks to talk about this series. And I told you a little bit about an article I read in the 2007 book about uh, Coach Cheney. And uh, that book was, or that was written by Robert Huber from the Philadelphia Times. And today, I want to talk a little bit about an article that the great Michael Lewis wrote. Um, it's in the 2007 book. And one of the things I usually do is I look right away just to find an author that I'm familiar with, and I'll look at his, his, his piece. And the Michael Lewis piece uh, is called What Keeps Bill Parcells Awake at Night? And if you go to our website and go on the forum and click on uh, this episode's uh, spot, you will find a link to What Keeps Bill Parcells Awake at Night from the New York Times Play Magazine. Now, Michael Lewis actually spent a whole week with Bill Parcells, following him around and uh, finding what makes Parcells tick. And it's really, a, it's, it's really a very interesting article, and I really enjoyed it. Anth, have you, uh, I know you have the 2007 book. Was there any articles uh, from the pro side of things that caught your eye? Well, I have the 2010 book here, Steve-O, and... Uh yeah, I'm Michael Lewis, big fan, again, as I said in the previous episode, and he does um, an article from the New York Times ma Magazine about Shane Battier, how he went from Duke, and uh, how he transferred himself into pro basketball. I yeah, I good, read that. I read that a, one. That's a good uh, story that fits our, our little two-episode uh, series here, going yeah. from college to pro, so I think that's a good one here. And it talks a lot about how Battier is kind of like an underrated player in the NBA because... Yeah. His it's called the no stats all star. Yeah, he's, his stats don't show up, but he's such a great defensive player that he's so valuable to his team. Yeah, exactly. I read that article, and it's interesting. We both picked Michael Lewis. Uh, we, you know, Michael Lewis is obviously he was in the 2007 book. He's in the 2010 book. He's he, everywhere. He could probably be in in it every year if they want. Yeah, he's to. he's he's a stud. We we're big Michael Lewis guys. Yep, awesome writer. So that's the book club update. We're gonna take a short break, and when we come back, we're gonna have an interview with Dan Kadar from MockingTheDraft.com. We're going to do a little something different and talk about the NFL Draft. So we'll be right back with Dan Kadar. Our next guest is from Akron, Ohio, and is a graduate of the University of Akron. He is the king, and he is on MockingTheDraft.com, uh, where he writes about the NFL draft. 
Uh, we are very excited to welcome Dan Kadar to the show. How are you doing today, Dan? I am doing very well. Uh, how are you? Um, I'm doing very good. You know, a couple of weeks ago when I was uh, just looking around the internet, I knew I wanted to have someone on to talk about the draft. And I was looking at some decent sites, or some sites on the internet, and I really just really enjoyed yours. Um, it's just a really nice site. Um, I don't know that as many people know about it as should, and that's one reason why I wanted to have you on. But uh, why don't you just tell me a little bit about how Mac Mocking the Draft came together and um, how you ended up on uh, SB Nation and uh, just kind of sure. the origins of the, of the website. Sure. Um, well, the, the site was around before I uh, joined it. Okay. The site, I, I believe SB Nation started as a general draft website to hold the writer's mock draft where each NFL site, uh, the person who ran the site, they pick a you know pick in a, in a mock draft and then they run it on the site. That evolved into Matt Miller from NewEraScouting.com. He started doing it, and I, I was working with Matt on, on New Era Scouting. And Matt decided to leave mocking the draft, and I decided to leave New Era Scouting for whatever reason. And um, you know, so mocking the draft was a place I wanted to look to because SB Nation always been known for their, you know, advanced technology on the back end for for the people who run the sites, and, you know, it, it was on an upward curve when I decided that's where I wanted to go. That was in um, January of 2009. So, you know, I, 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 jumped the, I jumped on the SB Nation wave, and I've been riding it since. So, you know, it, it's a great site. Uh, you know, if I, if I had to brag about it, and our traffic, I mean, it goes through the roof, you know, like, um, in January we had 500,000 page views, which, you know, I, I don't really compare our site to other ones as far as traffic goes, but I can't imagine there are too many that do much better than that, you know? Mm -hmm. So the, the idea behind the site is that, you know, we're always going to be free, and we're always going to try and give as much uh, in-depth thought analysis on players and teams as we can, you know. But the real catch is that, and with, with everyone on SB Nation, actually, is that we're all fans. So, you know, we're, we're going to have an opinion and a strong one. And as far as my site goes, you know, if people want to agree with my opinion, that's great. If they want to disagree, that's great too. You know. Because I'm doing it as a hobby mostly, and if they want to read my stuff, you know, I'm, I'm tickled about it, but I'm going to do it regardless of however many people may be going to the site or not going to it. Has the addition of Rob Neuer on the baseball side kind of increased the general traffic at SB Nation and the awareness? You know, I, I really have no idea, to be honest, because um, I kind of stick to my own little corner here with the NFL draft stuff. Mm-hmm. So from, from my perspective, he's on the other end of the universe doing only baseball. So um, it, it's, defi it's definitely a great thing because, like, the day it was announced, it was trending on Twitter, you know, that, that which is pretty crazy because, you know, the, the things that end up trending on Twitter, you know, are like wars and crazy... Yeah. Britney Spears, Justin Bieber, yeah. Right, right, lots of Bieber, Bieber-tastic or whatever the kids say. So, 
you know, to, to see that happen, it just kind of affirms the direction that SB Nation is going. Let's get down to the draft because, you know, it's kind of a lucky thing that you covered the draft because you don't have to talk about lawyers and lockouts and things like that. Just right. to, and that's what everyone else who covers the NFL is doing unless you cover the draft. It's the one thing that is guaranteed for the next year, uh, and it's something that we can talk about instead of the lawyers in the lockout, which I hate personally. I just want them to sure. just finish it in a dark room somewhere, and I don't want to hear another thing about it. But the draft is there, and I think the excitement for the draft might be even greater this year than normal because people are going to be holding to the fact that it could be the last piece of NFL football for a little while. But um, we're located in Buffalo, and this is a huge draft for the Bills. And I think a lot of our listeners are really interested in the draft because the Bills always blow it. Uh, They've actually Mm -hmm. drafted three running backs since they've been in the playoffs. They've drafted three (laughs) running backs in the first round since they've last been in the playoffs. The last time they drafted this high, they had the fourth overall pick and picked Mike Williams, who was a total bust. This year Mm -hmm. they go into the draft with the third pick. And before we get to the Bills... I think Bills fans need to know and are wondering, what is Carolina and Denver going to do ahead of them? Right. Well, Carolina has been down to eight players since probably before the NFL Combine, and they've been pretty open about it being eight guys. And that's, by my estimation, uh, Cam Newton, Blaine Gabbert, Nick Fairley, Marcel Darius, Patrick Peterson, A.J. Green, Dequan Bowers, that's seven. And the eighth guy is kind of a mystery. And I'm kind of, it's kind of out there, but I'm, for that eighth guy, I'm going to say it's Ryan Mallett, the quarterback of Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Who ran and like a boulder. Right. Yeah. And I, I only say that because uh, they sent him a playbook and, you know, they, they've had people talking to him. And I think they're having him in for a private workout or there to have. But, um, but out of those eight, Eight people, I think that Cam Newton is going to be the pick. I mean, John Clayton of ESPN even said it today that that pick's starting to look like it's a lock, that it's going to be Newton. And I mean, sometimes it's hard to decide what is, you know, truth and what is rumor and what smokescreen this time of the year. But, you know, over the next couple of weeks here, we'll, we'll get a better idea. But right now, I think it's, it's looking like Newton for Carolina. Does Newton remind you a lot? Of Vince Young, is that an unfair comparison? I mean, he's got the the size, the speed. He's a freak of an athlete. He dominated college the last year he was in it, and he's got a somewhat awkward throwing motion. And it's kind of hard for me not to compare him to Vince Young. But is that unfair to him? Is he a better talent than that? Yeah, I, I think you know, I, I think it's a little bit of an unfair comparison, only because they're they're both big. But if you look at them. Uh, Vince Young is a lot, like, lankier. Like, he kind of looks like a basketball player, like a shooting guard, kind of. You know, he's long and angular. Whereas Newton, I mean, you know, he he really does look like a defensive end. And, uh, you know, I I think Newton does have a kind of a weird throwing motion, but at least he's willing to to work on it. Whereas Young, you know, he's stuck with the the weird sidearm kind of, Uncle Rico, you know, pitch that he still does. So I, I don't think, I've never liked that comparison. I mean, I, I know why people make it, and it's been happening for quite a while, but the player I've always compared Newton to, and this is, you know, since 
October, you know, is has been Roethlisberger, just because they're both so big and uh, physical, and Newton would be just so hard to take down, you know, when when a play breaks down. Now, interestingly, that you bring up Roethlisberger because he's had some character issues, and I think there's been some question marks about Cam Newton's character, especially regarding the comment that he made about being an icon and things like that. Do you think he's clean character-wise? Would you, If you ran a team, would you be comfortable um, paying him the $40 million it's going to take or whatever to sign him and uh, lead the franchise for the next 10 years? Yeah, that's kind of the great unknown, you know, because when people... I don't think it's fair to compare the character of the two only because Roethlisberger's is... Um, related to sexual abuse, whereas Newton is related to people wondering what he might do with money, which no one knows. I mean, just because he has a wacky father doesn't mean he's going to go out and spend all of his money, you know, right when he gets it. So, you know, I, I think the, the character problems are a little strange. You know, uh, it, it was weird to hear him call himself, he wants to be an icon or whatever, but it's kind of how today's athlete is, you know. They're they're very confident, and you know, if if you if you were that guy, you know, with that size and that arm, and how how wouldn't you be that confident? You know, I, I'm more concerned about his uh, playing ability than I am about any character issues with him. Now, I'd be really surprised if Carolina didn't draft a quarterback, just because if you look at their division, you know, for the next ten years, they're going to be facing Drew Brees in New Orleans and Matt Ryan in Atlanta, and they're going to need a good quarterback. Uh, to right. compete in that division, but what about Denver? Where, if if we go, Cam, if we say, all right, Cam Newton's going to go number one because they need a quarterback, and that's the guy they like the most. What does Denver? Do, what does Denver do next? Yeah, Denver. It, to me, it looks like a interior defensive lineman, only because they're switching to a four three. And last year they needed defensive linemen. They didn't really address it. And they finished, uh, I think, 31st in the NFL in, in run defense last year. So, to me, um, it has to be either Nick Fairley or Marcel Darius. And uh, for, for Denver, I think Darius is a better fit only because he can hold up against a run better. You know, I think some people think Patrick Peterson makes sense there because Champ Bailey's getting old. But, you know, I think... In this NFL environment, teams have to be a little more cognizant of adding players who can make a more immediate impact in, in the biggest way. And to me, uh, Darius does that for Denver. Okay, so Denver goes defensive line. Now we're up to the Bills. Now, a lot of people would like to see the Bills draft a quarterback, and uh, Blaine is still sitting there. So he's available for them to draft based on what we're talking about. But they might be wiser to go with the best defensive player available just because they have so many holes and they need to fill so much talent. What do you think the Bills should do with the third pick? And I'm sure uh, this will be debated, he debated heavily in Buffalo the next couple of weeks because it's such an important draft pick for them. They just can't afford to blow it. Right, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a pivotal pick for the franchise as a whole. You know, and when you, if you think of it that way, which I do, I, I think that kind of rules out Patrick Peterson because he might not make a huge impact on the whole game. You know, I mean, I know he can play special teams, but um, you don't see cornerbacks taken that highly for a reason. Mm -hmm. And then, so then the other player, if you look at on defense, is Vaughn Miller, the pass rusher from Texas A&M, 
you know, I don't like them quite as much as everyone else, but, you know, if they want to make a 3-4 work, you need pass rushers, and clearly Aaron Maben isn't the, the guy who's going to be that player. So, you know, it, it, to me, I, I think Miller makes the most sense because he's so disruptive, and I kind of like Ryan Fitzpatrick still. But, you know, that, that's just me saying what I think they should do and kind of the idea um, of, of draft sites when you do mock drafts is you have, you have to decide whether you're doing them for what you think is going to happen or what you think it should happen. And so if I, if I go with what I think is going to happen, I think they're going to take Blaine Gabbert. What they should do is take Von Miller. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes absolute sense. And there's so much riding on it. Let's talk a little bit about Blaine Gabbert. And where did he come from? Because it, it seems like he's one guy that, I don't know, I mean, we, we've talked about Cam Newton all year in college football, but we didn't talk much about Missouri or Blaine Gabbert. You know, so I think a lot of people don't know as much about him. Why don't you talk a little bit about what kind of player he is and maybe compare him to someone that people are familiar with? Right, yeah. Um, you know, in NFL draft circles, people were talking about Gabbert all year. Uh, only because of what he did the year before, and you know he he's a classic, classic-looking quarterback. You know he's big. He has a you know a pretty nice arm. I mean it's not great, but it's, it's good enough. Um, he's known as a smart guy. He's pretty confident, which is weird because he's very confident. Uh, people question Cam Newton about his character based on how confident he is, but not Blaine Gabbert. But anyway. Um, you know, he, he just has the, he, he looks like a franchise quarterback, you know, and to compare him to someone, I don't know, um, you know, Troy Aikman might be a pretty fair comparison because then he doesn't have a gigantic arm, but he's tall and he can see over the line really well. And in general, he makes pretty good decisions at quarterback. Do you think race is the reason that Blaine Gabrick gets a pass on his character issues, yeah. but Cam Newton doesn't? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. I mean, you can go to any draft site, and, you know, we're guilty of it, too, at times of, you know, when you're comparing players, you compare them to to the same race, you know. And there's there's a, practically a book written on how you describe um, white players, you know. They're high motor, you know, play to the whistle kind of players, you know. It's, it's unfair, but sometimes it's, you know, it's true, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and it's interesting because I think when you talk about the NFL draft, the quarterbacks are always they always mesmerize you. I mean, I think it's why maybe San Francisco got in a little trouble a few years ago um, taking Alex Smith. Um, you know, obviously everyone can see now that Aaron Rodgers was probably the better pick, but either way, it was a draft that probably screamed for a quarterback not to be taken number one, but one was mm-hmm. anyway. Who are the num- How many quarterbacks will be drafted in round one this year? Just the two, or is there someone else that could sneak into well, the first round? It's kind of hard to say because, you know, like eight of the top ten teams drafting need a quarterback. But the problem is, you know, not there's not a lot of great quarterbacks in this draft early. You know, there's right. not three guys like we saw in, what, 2004 with Roethlisberger uh, Manning and Rivers. So to me, you know, when I did my last mock draft, I think there were four. It was Gabbard Newton, um, Ryan Mallett to Seattle, and Jake Locker, I think. Uh, I put him somewhere in the teens, maybe to Miami, I think, yeah. 
And, um, you know, even that was a little hard, you know, because, you know, most teams draft based on best player available, but with so many teams, you know, overwhelmingly needing a quarterback, I can kind of expect those guys to go in the first round locker and mallet, but, you know, Christian Ponder might even sneak into the back end there. That's interesting. It seems like Mallet has maybe hurt his stock a little bit just by how slow he ran. He kind of ran like an offensive lineman. Um, who are some people who have really improved their stock, not based on anything they did in their last year of college football, but based on the things that have happened since the season end, things like the Senior Bowl or the Scouting Combine or Pro Days? Who are guys that have really you know, utilized uh, those opportunities and, and rocketed up draft boards? There, there's some guys up front on the defense that really helped themselves. Um, Muhammad Wilkerson, the defensive tackle from the Temple, did really well because he had to show how athletic he is for such a big guy, and he's big. I mean, we interviewed him at the combine, and he, he's a massive guy for someone who's just over 300 pounds, but he's six five, and you know, so he has the kind of framework and keep getting bigger. But he helped himself because he moves around so well. Um, the, the same can be said for Ryan Kerrigan, the defensive end from Purdue. You know, <clears throat> excuse me. I kind of question how he he moved around a little bit. Sometimes he looks pretty stiff, you know, when you watch games. But he kind of showed that you know he can he can probably kick out to outside linebacker if he has to. But he's also someone who you know he's shown that I think he's been up to like over 270 pounds. He's also been down to like in the 260s through this whole process. But he can show that he can get bigger or smaller fairly easily and play end or linebacker. So, that you know, that stuff like that, it's not always the, the timing numbers, showing in positional drills how well you move around or just showing in something as easy as a weigh-in, you know, how, how you can change physically to, to fit a position better. Interesting. So skill positions are always, you know, probably the most sexy picks. But it seems mm-hmm. like defensive line is where this draft is the deepest. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, defensive line is the deepest. Uh, but wh- what pos- what skill positions do you like? Are you a big A.J. Green guy? How do you, is, is the Ingram to Emmett Smith comparisons fair? Uh, who are the running backs and wide receivers that you like in the draft? Because those are always the sexy guys that people want to buy the jerseys right. right away and stuff like that. Sure. Well, A.J. Green has been ranked the number one player uh, for mocking the draft since before last season started, and he hasn't moved. Uh, he and Ian Patrick Peterson actually have been one and two the whole time, and you know, I'm pretty confident in saying that they're not going to move for, or they're not going to move next time I do a, a ratings update. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of depth at running back this year. I think the the top guys are pretty good with Ingram and uh, Ryan Williams and Mikel Shore. But if you don't want to pick a running back in the first two rounds, you know there, there's plenty of guys who fit what a team might want to do later in the draft. You know, running back. There's so many underclassmen entering. You kind of get the pick of some pretty okay players. I mean, they're not great, but like a Demarco you know, Murray type. Yeah, yeah. Like he's a power guy. Uh, Bill Powell, uh, Powell's a power guy from Louisville. And there's speed guys like Derek Locke and Jordan Todman and Shane Vereen. And there's guys who are zone guys like DeLone Carter and Daniel Thomas and Darren Evans. 
So there's a whole, you know, a litany of players who can do specifically what a team might need. So a team can fill that spot without having to, you know, go out of their way to have to teach a, a player a new kind of style. Okay, it's the Sportscasters. We're talking to Dan Kadar of MockingTheDraft.com. Uh, you can follow them on Twitter. It's just at MockingTheDraft, correct? Yes. Yep, uh, you can find them there. It's MockingTheDraft.com is the website. Um, it's part of the SB Nation, a really a great site. I definitely recommend you to check it out. One last thing before I let you go. I'm a big Saints fan, and uh, sure. I know if I was able to make the pick and he was available, the guy that I like the most is uh, Cameron Hayward. Um, his dad was a saint, a very good saint. Mm-hmm. Um, it fills a need as we could definitely use another uh, defensive end or even a defensive tackle to go with uh, Ryan Ellis or uh, Cedric Ellis and um, Will Smith. What do you think of Cameron Hayward? And is there another guy that you would say to me as a Saints fan you might prefer over him? That's yeah, realistic I, I, that we could, you know, would be around when we draft. Right. Yeah, Hayward's kind of an unknown only because he's been injured and he didn't work out at the Combine. His pro day's on March 30th. So, you know, he has to show a little bit there um, because he's kind of getting passed by some of these other guys who are more 3-4 defensive ends like he is. You know, so at this point, um, he might be kind of a reach where the Saints are picking. What is that, pick 24? 24, yep. Yeah. And uh, so I don't, I don't know if he'd be a good fit for them anyway because he's kind of uh, he's more of a three a four than a four three yeah. yeah yeah he's a power end kind of guy um, you know but the Saints kind of seems like they could go any number of ways they're they're one of the teams that could be kind of fluid with with where they pick you know they could go with running back if they don't you know they might get rid of Reggie Bush and hey, they could go defensive million. right. Right, defensive tackle might also make sense, and there there should be a couple guys left uh, by the time they pick. And then there's also, um, you know, if they need a pass rush, Justin Houston at Georgia uh, might be there when they pick, and I think he might uh, make some sense. What about an Alden Smith from Missouri? Would he make sense at defensive end? Yeah, I don't know if he'll be there, you know, only because he's so athletic, and those guys can go early in the first round, so unless the Saints decide to trade up, you know, I don't I don't think he'll be available. Okay. Interesting. All right, we got a lot of great information here from Dan from mockingthedraft.com. Like I said, you can find them on Twitter at mockingthedraft. The website is simply uh, www.mockingthedraft.com. There's a lot of different contributors, a lot of different writers, um, some of the cool features on the site. What are some of the features that you think uh, really make the site what it is? Right. Yeah, the the, the whole basis of the site is our super in-depth scouting reports. You know, there's some other sites that, that do them pretty big like that, but I'd like to think that that's kind of our backbone. Um, you know, I think we're going to have a mock draft every week leading up to the actual draft. That, that's something to look out for. Um, when the one guy put one up today. He's going to put a second round up tomorrow. Um you know, he, the same guy, John Dove, he does something called the Bustometer. Yep, very cool. Where, uh, you know, he kind of predicts the guys who are going to go early, and uh, maybe they shouldn't, so he kind of decides, you know, whether or, the, whether or not they're going to be a bust. So it, it's, it's pretty, um, it could be an incendiary take. You know, but that, that's kind of the, the basis of a site, like I said before, that 
you know, we make an opinion and we stick by it. And I know John's more than willing to stick by who he thinks might uh, might be a bust. So that's always a good one to look out for. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us tonight on the Sportscasters, and hopefully uh, we can get you again sometime before the draft. But thank you very much. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank right. you. And you're listening to my boyfriend Steve on the Sportscasters. And, oh yeah, Don's on it too. All right, one last segment this week on the Sportscasters. We have had, for the first time, two episodes in one week. A college episode and a pro episode. And this is the last segment of the pro episode. I'm not going to assume that you listen to the college episode, so I will recap pick four one more time. Last week, Don went one and three. Uh, his only win was Cornell over Dartmouth, three to nothing in the ECAC hockey playoffs. He lost Old Dominion over Buff- Butler, uh, fifty-eight to sixty, and he lost the Penguins over the Rangers. Uh, the Penguins won that game five to two, and he went eighteen and two on his bold prediction. But he was promised to be twenty and zero, and the first game that sunk him was Moorhead State over Louisville, sixty-two to sixty-one. His record after a one and three week is twenty-two and nineteen. I am back in the lead. With a record of 23 and 18 overall, I was two and two last week. I won the game of the week of Butler over Old Dominion, 60 to 58. The Hurricanes over the Islanders was my host choice. I won that three to two. I lost as Michigan State just fell short of a second half rally against UCLA. I lost that one, 78 to 76. And me and Luke Wynn were way off on Belmont over Wisconsin as that was a blowout, 72 to 58. So Anthony has Don's picks for the. Pro portion of pick four. So we have eight games in the standings this week. A chance for a big swing. So I'm going to start with the game of the week. And the game of the week in the pro side this week is a hockey game on Saturday afternoon at 1 o'clock. The Rangers at the Bruins. Both teams have 40 wins and are separated by only four points in the standings. Uh, It should be a big game for standings in the NHL playoffs. And uh, I will pick the Bruins to win at home. On a Saturday afternoon, I think they'll just get the calls and play a little bit better than the Rangers on a Saturday afternoon. I'll pick the Bruins. Donnie, uh, because of me, we'll go with the Bruins as well. Uh, tough to win in, uh, in Boston. Their barn, it's tough. They're a physical team, so I'm going to go with the Bruins. All right, the worldwide leader. My worldwide leader pick this week is a basketball game, Sunday, 8 o'clock, on the worldwide leader, ESPN. I'll pick the Oklahoma City Thunder to beat the Portland Trailblazers. I just love Kevin Durant. He's a superstar scorer. The game is in Oklahoma City, so I'll take the Thunder to beat the, the Trailblazers. Donnie and his worldwide leader will go with the Detroit Red Wings at home over Patrick Kane and the Chicago Blackhawks Monday, 7.30 on Versus. All right, my host choice. Uh, I picked against the Rangers earlier. I'm going to pick for the Rangers. This Thursday, they play a pretty bad Senators team at home. And the Rangers are desperate for points to try to lock up the seventh spot in the East. So I'm going to pick the Rangers to be good enough to win at home against the Senators on Thursday. Donnie's going host choice. The Sabres and Nathan Gerby, as he just popped another one as we speak right now, over the dismal and hideous Florida Panthers on Friday. All right, my bold prediction is actually from that game on Friday. The Sabres and the Panthers play Friday at 7.30. And my bold prediction is that Drew Stafford will score his fourth hat-trick 
of the season in the Panthers and Sabres game on Friday at 7.30. Drew Stafford, Hetrick. North Dakota. All right. And Donnie's bold prediction, just because he really doesn't like the heat, he's going to go with the uh, 76ers over Miami Friday at 7.30. That's great. It's always great to root against the heat, so I want to congratulate Don on having yeah. that opportunity this week. It's really a great, a great thing to root against them. But, Ant, that's it. Uh, two episodes this week. You filled in admirably. I want to thank you for that. Why don't you tell us uh, what you got going here the rest of the USHL season? Yeah, well, speaking of the heat, you know, I'm going to take my talents tomorrow to Chicago. We got a road trip this weekend, uh, eight games left in the regular season here, trying to make a push for the playoffs. We're, uh, we're two points out, so hopefully we can get her going here. Me and my roommate Tyson Fulton gonna going to bring the offense. So uh, look out for the Blackhawks. And uh, thanks to the sportscasters, and thanks to Donnie for having scar- uh, scurvy. Yeah, so, it is uh, a devastating disease, Scurvy. Yeah, it's bad. So uh, thanks, boys, for having me. Yeah, Appreciate we got to recommend that Don Don eats or drinks a lot of uh, a lot of vitamin C. Vitamin C. Pedialyte. Yeah, well, vitamin C will also cure scurvy. Couple things before we go. Next week, a uh, baseball show and talk a little bit about the Yankees. Sweeney Murdy from WFAN, the fan, will be on with us on behalf of Anthony Day. My name is Steve Bennett, sportscaster, signing off for the week. We'll clue the hip. If New Orleans is sinking, then I don't want to swim.